Recipes for Life podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanded consciousness. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Dr. Maya Shatrik Klein is an integrative pediatric neurologist with a medical degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, where she was awarded the Edward Pato Award for Excellence in Pediatrics and graduated with a special distinction in research in child neurology for her original work in autism. Dr. Shatrik Klein completed the University of Arizona's two-year fellowship in integrative medicine founded by Andrew Whale, MD, and is now a member of the faculty. She is lectured nationally and internationally for both physicians and lay people on topics such as children's health, autism, integrative medicine, and nutrition, toxins, and neurological health. She practices in New York City where she lives with her family. To learn more about Dr. Maya Shatrik Klein, visit her website, dirtcure.com. That's D-I-R-T-C-U-R-E dot com. And for more information, pick up her amazing book, The Dirt Cure. Maya, thank you so much for being a part of our Recipes for Life podcast today. It is an honor to have you here talking to us and sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. I want to get stuck right into it and find out who you are. And you are an integrative pediatric neurologist. Now, can you explain that to us? What what does that actually mean, <laughs> please? Sure. So uh, I studied pediatrics and I trained in neurology as well. And I did a sort of a specialization in pediatric neurology. So I see all kinds of chronic health issues in children, but especially end up treating things like seizures and headaches and ADHD, learning disabilities, tics and pandas and a lot of behavior and mood kinds of things. Um, but I'm also board certified in adults, so I do a lot of work actually with parents as well. You've written a couple of amazing books, and the title is something that I just absolutely love. You've called your latest book The Dirt Cure. Now, I'd love to for you to explain where did the title come from? I mean, after reading the book, it's pretty self-evident, and uh, 
How has the reception been to having a book out there called The Dirt Cure, which encompasses so many different thoughts and different philosophies out there? Well, actually, one just philosophy is which is reconnecting back to nature, but you encompass so many things from food to how we live to social interaction and everything. How did you put this book together and how did you come up with the title as well, please? Well, I think, you know, for me, the idea of dirt was sort of almost tongue-in-cheek, right? Because we think of dirt as being something really kind of bad and worthless, you know, and I know in actually in sort of the UK and maybe in Australia too, dirt has a very not nice meaning um, for some people. But from my point of view, dirt encompassed three major things, which was um, being exposed to germs and microbes, eating fresh food from healthy soil, and getting out into nature. So to me, those are the three uh, foundations of our physical health and really not just our physical health, but our even emotional and spiritual health. Everything is really about how we interact with the world around us. And for me, our inner body, our bioterrain has to be in alignment with the world around us, which is our eco-terrain. And when they're in alignment, that's when we're healthy and the world around us is healthy as well. You talk about in the book that people have this conception that you are what you eat. And I've spoken to different people on the podcast before, and they actually say, well, you actually are what you absorb. But you take it even a step further where you talk about, in actual fact, you are what your food eats. And that one statement there was very, very profound for me reading your book because it makes so much sense. So can you elaborate on that, please? Sure. You know, I think we've gotten into this idea, you know, we're so far away from where our food comes from in many cases that we've become really, we sort of are, are that disconnection makes it that we have to use our, our brains and kind of our understanding way more than we normally would. I mean, eating used to be something very instinctual and very much in the rhythm of nature. You know, the things that were available to us at a given time were what we ate. And processing food would have been so much more trouble, so much more time, so much more expensive that doing anything processed, just, you know, even even baking things, you know, was just more effort to put together all the different ingredients and more expensive. So things like candy or, you know, all those sorts of processed things were, were something that were very distant. Now, you know, we say, okay, eat whole foods. And this was a thing that was going on is that I had these patients coming to me and they would be really struggling. And it turned out that the foods that they were really struggling with beyond the processed foods, like, you know, things that had food coloring or preservatives or, you know, MSG or artificial sweeteners, which were, you know, things that actually a lot of people struggle with and, and can cause a lot of health uh, issues. They were actually struggling with things like milk. They were, their bodies were reacting to milk or gluten or eggs you know, or, or certain, or certain other kinds of food that seem like they should be healthy. And it was so confusing for them. And actually even initially for me, like, how could these foods be unhealthy? And so I, I dove deep into what are we doing? How are we growing and producing these foods? And it mm -hmm. turns out that mm -hmm. of course with animals, I mean, I think it makes sense, right? We integrate everything that we're eating into our bodies and so do animals. So if a a cow is eating a diet like pasture, like grass and clover and all the different things that cows really are meant to eat, then their milk and their and their meat is going to be a lot 
more healthy and wholesome. But if they're living on grains that are really not intended to be in a cow's diet, um, or, you know, cows are getting a lot of just waste here, you know, so now in these facilities where cows are are being fed, you know, in little stalls rather than being outside, they're not getting sunlight, they're getting a lot of antibiotics, which is affecting, you know, the way that they metabolize things. And they're, they're getting things like, you know, like stale chewing gum and other things just that are supposed to give them calories. And that affects the meat and it affects their milk. And then that affects how we, how we react to those foods in our own body. And the same thing applies even to plants. So when we put a lot of pesticides on the soil, the soil that's feeding the plants is actually um, totally different. And it makes the plants nutrient composition and general health very different. And that also is affecting our nutritional intake. And so it really is like a whole web. You know, we're not just like, you can't just say, oh, this is a healthy food. You really have to know where it came from. You say that ha nothing happens in isolation and you're talking about the web here and that sometimes when patients have these issues, it's hard for them to join the dots together sometimes because even when they go to a, a regular doctor, sometimes the doctors aren't even joining the dots together because they're looking for things in isolation, whereas you are looking at things from a holistic point of view. And you're not the only person that I've spoken to on this podcast uh, and other neurologists as well, such as Dr. Dale Bredesen and Dr. David Perlmutter and uh, Dr. Natasha McBride, bring about this web of life that you talk about as well. And I want to dig a little bit deeper, pardon the pun, because part of your book starts to, or is broken into a few different areas where you're talking about eating dirt, grow the food in the dirt, you want to bathe in the dirt, and you also want to protect the dirt. And I love that last one, protecting dirt. So do you want to talk us through the, the those four um, main things, starting with eating the dirt, please? Yeah. Um, from the point of view of eating dirt, it's not... Well, I'm going to back up and say the first thing that we know about soil is that it is actually incredibly biodiverse. And about 25% of the world's biodiversity lives in our soil. And in addition to that, in one teaspoon of soil lives as many organisms as there are people on the planet. So, which is pretty profound. And we talk about probiotics and getting healthy microbes in our diets and things like that. But really, soil is probably one of the premier ways that we can absorb and, and take in all of these beneficial microbes. Now, it's not that I'm saying we should actually eat dirt in big globs, but um, when we're getting food straight from the garden or straight from a farmer's market, and it's not been power washed and coated with wax, and there's all kinds of things that happen, um, disinfected, you know, between the time that food is grown and when it reaches a supermarket. So the idea is the closer we are to eating the food, um, straight from the ground, the better we are. And even if it means a rinse, there's still going to be that little tiny bit of soil that's still attached with all of those organisms that are really beneficial. So eating dirt is really just about getting as close to the food as possible, which takes me into growing food in dirt, right? So you want to have this healthy soil and having that healthy soil means actually soil that's filled with microbes 
that doesn't have pesticides or herbicides, which don't just kill the things we don't like, but also kill the things we do like. And actually what we're learning more and more is that having a very diverse number of organisms of all kinds means that no particular group grows out of control. So it actually is very protective to have more and more and more and more of different kinds of organisms. And when we have healthy dirt and we grow that food in the dirt, it means that the plants are actually going to be richer in phytonutrients, actually, because the phytonutrients are the things in, let's say, that make cranberries red or um, grapes purple, right? Like the beautiful colors, but also they're very, very important for our health. And when the soil is very biodiverse and has lots and lots of different organisms in it, it challenges the plants to make more of these phytonutrients, which are very, very healthy and important for our bodies. So this is another piece is being in contact with healthy soil by eating it, by growing your food in it. And especially, you know, that takes me into actually gardening and being outdoors, which is the bathing in the, in the dirt or having direct contact with soil. Because when we do that, we actually inhale and get into little cuts on our fingers, all these little microbes and bits from the soil that are actually incredibly important for our bodies and our brains. So what's so fascinating is there's been quite a bit of research done on different soil organisms that affect our mood, one of which is called um, Mycobacterium um, vacai. And that particular organism has been shown to actually make us happier and make us smarter and make us more relaxed. So what an incredible thing to get from just the contact in the soil. And from the point of view of protecting the soil, uh, we're, we're thinking about things like not putting down a lot of pesticides, using compost um, rather than chemical fertilizers, because the soil is constantly giving to us and feeding us, but it needs to be fed as well and it needs to be cared for as well. So that's kind of this whole cycle of everything being connected is just kind of immersing yourself in in the natural world from eating to growing to having just that physical contact and also giving back. So what are some simple ideas that you recommend for people that live in the city, that have a young family and are wanting to reconnect with nature? So this is a big issue for a lot of people because so many people now live in urban environments and they think, well, I can't do these things. I can't grow. I can't get out into nature. But I think that um, there's a lot of ways actually to do that. And one of the simplest things is actually just to get outside um, to a park. And this is the beauty of, of having parks. I live in New York City and um, we actually have many, many beautiful parks here, including Central Park where all you have to do really is go find a beautiful spot that calls to you um, and sit down outside, bring a picnic, bring a book. If you have hope your kids have homework to do, then they can bring their homework and actually sit in the park and do their homework. Obviously, a lot of it does happen online. So there's some of it that is, you know, a little more um, homebound. But you know, I even I even recommend um, just like even having recess time and playground time. Um, there's also a lot of uh, city gardens and community gardens. So I think like I've told people, you know, 
go outside and hug a tree. <laughs> Have that contact. And it's so, you will see if you take the two minutes to just, and you don't have to, you know, worry about people thinking you're stupid because they're going to be jealous <laughs> when they see you afterwards. But it's very transformative to have that kind of contact with nature. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to live in, you know, the middle of nowhere in the country. I mean, you know, that's obviously its own special kind of contact, but city people can have it too. And I think that's really important is once you actually start this therapeutic practice, you actually start to, or have the intention to connect with nature, is that the opportunities are boundless more and more that you put yourself in these situations where you never thought that they actually were. I film a lot and I'm, I'm working a lot around different parts of the world, but every day that whenever I'm on a location, I, I can always find a tree to put my hand on. And uh, some people do think I'm a little bit strange, but I actually do reach out. It, it's sort of, it's nearly like a magnetic uh, attraction now where you see it and you just walk over or you take your shoes off and actually just stand there. And and you talk about earthing in your book as well. And uh, I'd love for you to explain that because you were basically touching on it then, but I'd like to know the science behind it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so earthing is, um, you know, it sounds like a pretty, um, kind of woo concept, but, um, when I went to look in the scientific literature, actually there's quite a bit published on it. What it basically is, is that the earth has an unlimited flow of electrons being emitted, essentially. And in our bodies, we have free radicals that are produced just through metabolism. It's just a normal thing, but um, sometimes they can build up and get a little out of control and cause damage in our cells. And those electrons, that flow of electrons actually neutralizes the inflammation and the damage from free radicals. So the way that we can enjoy that and benefit from that is actually simply to have direct physical contact with the earth, which means walking barefoot on the ground. It can mean wearing, actually, you can also, as long as you're not wearing like shoes with rubber soles or anything grounding that will sort of ground a current, even if you're wearing like leather soles or natural fibers, it's a, it's a, a way of having that flow, hugging the tree, sitting on a rock, sitting down outside. That's why I say like, just lay a blanket down and lie down out in the grass to, you know, answer your emails. Um, even, <laughs> you know, is you're going to walk away from that feeling more peaceful and feeling healthier and more relaxed. That's partly because of that flow of electrons that you're basically absorbing from the earth. It's quite amazing. One of the things that really stood out for me reading your book and uh, actually watching you online as well and, and following your Instagram account, and uh, it is amazing, is the notion that you have of creation instead of consumerism or create instead of consuming. And I'd love to hear it from, from your mouth and your wisdom about this, because I think this is going to be very profound for people. Well, I think, you know, what we never really realized as we've gone into this kind of consumer culture is that the earth is not just this unlimited source of products. <laughs> and we've gotten into this idea of being consumers. And it's such an interesting word um, when we talk about consumers, because think about what consuming is. Consuming is really to kind of gobble up and destroy, right? 
And Mm -hmm. so we don't, I think language is very, very important. And I think that part of what we need to do is shift our perspective from the idea of, of just taking and gobbling it up and destroying to how can we be in a relationship with the world and, and the natural world is, as it gives to us. So for me, like I'm always thinking about being in relationship. And, you know, I think that that's a very key idea. I'm also an herbalist as well as a neurologist. So when I talk about plants, like I'm always thinking about plant allies, right? That the way that they come in as, as friends and as support and in the same way, I'm thinking about how can I support my allies, my plant allies. So I plant them, I grow them, I nurture them. It's a relationship, in other words, of taking and giving back the same way you would with a friend. Oh, I love it. I'm, I'm in the garden now <laughs> at a farm, and it's one of the greatest joys of uh, nurturing uh, and growing your own food. I want to just take a slight detour back to actually your your main focus and, and what you're renowned for, which is children's health. So I want to talk about children, and I guess we can't talk about children without talking about where they come from, which is from the mother and father, preconception. So one of the things that I would love to hear from you is basically your advice for parents that are planning on starting a family or bringing in the new generation in, what's your advice or prescription might be a better word of, of how to go about it to ensure if, if there is such a thing as ensuring that the next generation have very robust and strong health? This is such an important question and something I feel really, you know, passionate about actually, you know, and I'm so glad that you said it's related to the mother and the father because I actually believe preconception and pregnancy, mother and father are very important. But in fact, you know, so much of the perceived responsibility is on the mother because she's carrying the baby where, you know, we've learned things like actually there are many things about the father that dictate the health of the baby. So even like paternal age is one of the most important paternal age and not maternal age is actually a very um, important risk factor, let's say for autism. You know, so it's so interesting, right, that we've put so much on mothers um, when it's really both parents that have to think about their health around preconception um, and conception. And so, you know, the things that I think about are, you know, I think the first thing is just to understand that in that period, it's not just once you're pregnant that you have to start thinking about taking good care of yourself. It actually begins um, before that. And the more you start caring for yourself before you even enter that period, and this means for me, all the things I wrote about in my book, including eating nutrient-dense foods. That means a lot of whole foods and thinking when you're eating something that's very processed, like biscuits, or you know, you're going out and having, you know, some kind of pretzels or other other kinds of processed items, you want to be thinking this is something that's actually taking away from your nutrition. It's okay to occasionally have a treat like that, but You should think of it as a treat and think, you know, the rest of the time you want to be eating a lot of nutrient dense organic fruits and vegetables and uh, plenty of healthy fats, making sure that you're getting your sleep, which is a time of replenishing, making sure your bowel health is important is very, very key. So that means for me, eating fermented foods, if possible, 
perhaps taking probiotics if you're having, you know, any kinds of issues, if you've been on a lot of antibiotics in your life. And again, I think getting out into nature, this is, it's always an answer. (laughs) It's always at least part of the answer is spending that time in nature. So let's fast forward. Uh, The baby is born. It starts to grow up. The parents potentially see something that they are concerned about. Maybe it's a behavioral issue or learning difficulties. What's the first steps here? What, where should a parent take the child? I mean, obviously somebody like you is, is optimal, but take us through the process here and, and, uh, some indicative signs that, uh, they may, may need some, some added help. Yeah. I mean, I think when there's a few things I think about when children have, you know, learning or behavioral issues, the very, very first thing that I think about is really is the problem the child or is it the environment? And I think that we need to talk about this more is that, you know, the way kids are being educated now is actually not always really developmentally appropriate. And it's very, very, very demanding in a way that I think is not always very healthy. So I see a lot of, you know, because kids are often expected to sit almost straight for, you know, six, seven hours a day, which is, is not what anyone should be doing. So I think a lot of times parents will come to me and they're being asked to, you know, address this issue with these children, but really it's the problem of the school and this sort of really inappropriate thing because children really do better learning experientially and having opportunities to move around and things like that. So that's something I always start with is, are we trying to put a square peg in a round hole? Mm. However, beyond that, I think I'm looking at diet always. So I'm looking at food chemicals and that, you know, I've mentioned before, it can be things like MSG. It can be things like artificial sweeteners. It can be food dyes, preservatives, high fructose corn syrup, all of those different kinds of things. The next thing I look at is food sensitivities or allergies. When kids are exposed to things like that actually causes inflammation and that inflammation can affect the brain and how the brain functions. Um, and I go into a lot of depth about how that looks in my book, but I think that's the second big issue um, with diet. And the third thing I look at is, again, a lot of nutrient-dense foods, plenty of healthy fats. So things like egg yolks, um, which are like liquid gold, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, getting a lot of um, different kinds of oils as well. I'm a fan for people who can tolerate it of butter or ghee um, from grass fed, you know, pastured animals. And then, you know, things like coconut oil can be wonderful. So I think healthy fats, the brain is made uh, 60 to 70% of fat and um, cholesterol. So liver is another wonderful thing. Again, this is, you know, not for the vegetarian people might, might be a little, it's a little more of a challenge to get those fats in. It's certainly possible, but these are the things I think are quite important. And then I look at toxic exposures, uh, which can be things like, you know, heavy metals. It can be things like pesticides. I found, you know, people in the New York area who live right near the airport tend to have jet fuel byproducts in their blood. So these are things, you know, I'm thinking about is how do we prevent or avoid too much of toxic exposures and how do we optimize um, the child's ability to detoxify? That can be as simple as making sure that they're moving their bowels every day, you know? So 
I talk about poop a lot. Um, I'm a neurologist that totally talks about poop. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the school system isn't really a normal thing or the education system that no one wants to sit there for that many hours a day. And po possibly even the things that we're learning are, are that important as far as uh, the whole percentage goes. So I guess it is vitally important that we spend the time to get our children back into nature and having that creative freedom. I think this is absolutely critical because children spend so much, first of all, they spend so much time in school every day. And then very often they're doing sports, but at least in the United States, a lot of times they're on artificial turf, which is made actually of like waste that can be toxic um, and has heavy metals and other things in it. And then they come home and they have hours of homework to do. So I think when you're sending our children to school all day, I want to make sure that several hours of that day, they get to be outdoors, getting the sunshine getting the experience of being in nature. There are all these memes now that I think are really valid where children can recognize the um, logo of like 50 or 70 different companies, but they can't recognize a leaf and identify the tree that it comes from or a flower. And I think, you know, these companies will come and go over time, but the natural world is eternal, we hope, and we should really have a relationship with it. And then we've learned so much also, there's incredible data, which I cover in my book, about the benefits of being in nature, that children actually have higher test scores. They focus better. They are happier. They're more relaxed. They sleep better. I mean, there's virtually nothing that doesn't improve when children have more time in highly natural settings. So I think we really need to, as parents, as teachers, as physicians, as everybody, we need to really speak out for children having more natural time during the day and also give them more time in the natural world when they're not in school. Hmm. I'm going to um, take a bit of a detour here. It's not really too much of a detour, but we we're talking about nature here, and I know that you have an interest in plant medicines and also entheogens, as I do as well. And I wanted to understand how does this translate into uh, the world of a neurologist, because it is a topic that is becoming more and more prominent in the scientific journals and how it can benefit us, uh, certain people at certain times. It's not a prescription for everybody from what I understand. So I'd love to talk to a neurologist about the emergence of these plant medicines and entheogens in the, in the world at the moment. Absolutely. I feel, you know, very passionate about the idea of plant medicine. Um, and I differentiate that in a way from entheogens, but I think obviously they're very connected as well. So, I mean, I think plants are um, an incredibly powerful source of healing for us. And that can be as simple as giving someone flowers. You know, when people mm -hmm. are okay of flowers, you have just experienced plant medicine, that joy, that sense of uh, lightness, that sense of transformation of what you're feeling. I mean, there is a reason that we give flowers to each other to celebrate or for grief or for love. It's because plants change us. And um, it's just a very, very powerful relationship. So that's for me, you know, you don't even have to ingest plants in order to experience plant medicine. However, there is a really, really um, amazing burgeoning 
science about the benefits of entheogens, which are the plants that have psychoactive properties. And in my world, as um, you know, I've studied with indigenous healers and shamans now for many years, these plants are called teacher plants or master plants. And some examples of master plants that we don't probably think of as being altering in, in the way that most people would talk about, let's say magic mushrooms or something, are things like coffee, right? In other <laughs> words, like coffee, if you think about it, it's a very, very powerful plant. Or how about chocolate? I mean, people True. live for these plants. And so these are powerful, powerful plants that alter the way we feel in very measurable ways. When we get to something, let's say like psilocybin or, or magic mushrooms, or let's say um, ayahuasca, which is becoming a much more popular topic, there's actually more and more scientific literature that these plants can help to heal us in ways that no medication can. And we're talking about things like totally refractory depression that doesn't respond to any medication or therapy. We're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder that is crippling. We're talking about people who are dying and who are fearful of that process who can become peaceful about the process that they're going through. Um, so it absolutely ranges. We talk OCD symptoms, right? Obsessive compulsive disorder. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing because one of my areas of passion, and I'm actually launching a, a whole course on this, is that we don't have very much language around how to heal our spirits. And for me, a lot of physical problems come from our emotion, our hearts and our spirits feeling sick. Not really, it doesn't really start in the body. So I think that, you know, starting to look to these plants as ways that we can, um, even cannabis, I think, right? We're looking at medical marijuana now in the world very, very differently. We're thinking of it as truly a, a healing plant as opposed to a illegal drug that does bad things to people. And of course, as with any of these very powerful plants, you have to treat them with absolute respect because they are very powerful. And when we don't treat them well, they can, wreak havoc on us. But if we go in, in a good relationship, then we can actually be transformed for the better um, and sometimes even completely healed. So I really think it's some, a beautiful relationship that's forming. In other words, I don't think that doing psychoactive medications is for everyone. I truly don't. But I think that there are people who will be called to that because they're suffering so deeply and I think for those people, especially as we have more and more data showing, you know, the benefit, I think that there's amazing opportunity for building new relationships with the natural world. Well, thank you for sharing your insight into that. It's it's fascinating to hear. I love the connection that you have with the uh, the plant medicines, whether it's a, a bunch of flowers or growing flowers in the, in your back garden, or, or that connection or intention of giving somebody something and the effects that that can have on people. Whether it is a box of really good organic chocolate <laughs> as well, or, or a nice cup of coffee. We're going to finish up soon, and what I wanted to ask you about is this quote that you have in the book by the Dalai Lama about the mosquito. And it's one of the most profound things I've, I've ever read. And it's so, it hits the nail on the head so well because people 
often think that they haven't got what it takes or how can they change things? And, and I want you to talk about the quote and uh, actually what it is, if you don't mind, and your perception on this and why you've put it into the book and uh, what the future holds, because I, th- I do think it is magic. So I'm not sure I'm going to be able to quote directly, but I think the loose paraphrase of what the Dalai Lama said was, if you ever thought that one person couldn't make a difference, imagine um, spending the night with a mosquito. <laughs> I love it. It's truly a powerful statement because, I mean, for anyone who has done that, and I certainly have, I mean, you can be up the entire night. There is this teeny little insect that can truly torment you. And I think the idea here is that each of us thinks that we are, you know, just one person. We're so powerless. We can't do anything to make a change. But in fact, each of us, by how we live, how we spend our money, how we raise children, how we, you know, ask for our doctors to treat us, you know, sometimes saying, well, I would prefer not to do the antibiotics. Is there a better option that's more natural? Really just putting our voices out there. And even in the way we live, in the way we talk to the people around us, um, in the way we spend time in nature and listen to the natural world, all of these things are incredibly powerful. So it's not like you have to have, you know, an audience of a million people in order to um, make a difference because it can feel so discouraging, right? Like we have these massive corporations in the world that really are not looking out for our best interest and nor are they looking out for the best interest of the natural world and of our planet, which is also in our best interest, right? So it feels very overwhelming when we think about politicians and we think about corporations. But in fact, I've even seen since I've written the book, I've seen incredible things like I was driving in downtown Manhattan the other day and there was a big sign, a big ad for vodka, actually, on the side of a building. And it said in huge letters, non-GMO. And (laughs) I thought to my, I almost really cried, honestly, because um, GMO has been such a, a battle to get it into people's awareness because the larger corporations have put a lot into whitewashing it. And I really try to break it down with a lot of scientific literature in my book. But now people have an awareness. This is actually a selling point to people in downtown Manhattan. So, you know, we're really making a difference by all just using our voices and and voting with our wallets. So, you know, we can all be that mosquito and, uh, you know, hopefully torment the powers that be so that, you know, they treat us and, and the world better. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing. And we'll wrap up with uh, one of your delicious ingredients for your successful and happy recipe for life. And it could be anything that you would love to share with the audience that uh, maybe they don't know about you. Well, that's a hard one because for me, I mean, I think I've hammered the point home, but for me, it's really just being in relationship with Mother Earth. And Mm. And that really applies in so many ways. Like for me, if I'm exercising, I'm trying to make sure I'm trail running. So, you know, every day I try to get out, take a walk in nature or go for a run in nature. And when I'm doing it, I stop and I, I listen, I breathe it in and I could 
go on about all the benefits I think, you know, we get from that. I try to garden and grow some of my foods. I grow flowers. So in that way, connecting with nature is just so powerful. And just also the sense of awe, you know, I just saw outside my, my perennial flowers and herbs that I grow, you know, medicinal herbs, they come back every spring. And I mean, Obviously, that is the meaning of perennial, so it shouldn't be so surprising to me. But every year, I feel that sense of awe that I'm engaged in a miracle, you know, that like I see sort of things coming back again. So for me, my delicious ingredient, you know, for my recipe for life is connecting with trees, plants, earth, sky, and and nature. Maya. I just want to say that we love you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom to the audience. And I know that people are going to be fascinated and will go out there and, and purchase your book and start to put in some of these, uh, these gems that you've uh, shared with us today. So thank you so much. We hope you have a wonderful time in Australia when you come out and keep doing what you're doing. We love thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.